0: Hebrews chapter 6, anchored to the rock. Father, I pray that you give us understanding of your word. Lord, apply it to our hearts. We don't need knowledge for knowledge's sake. We need knowledge for ministry, weapons for the right hand, weapons for the left hand, that we might be faithful in our ministry. And Lord, I pray for those who are still on the edge, like some of those that the writer of Hebrews is writing to, they haven't committed, they've even experiencing the the fellowship and the ministry of the saints, but not anchored to the rock, Lord. Draw them to yourself today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 says, for this reason we must pay close attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. The writer of Hebrews, again, he comes back to this subject. And Peter says the same thing as he gets to 2 Peter. He says, I'm going to remind you again. You've heard it before. Make sure you're saved. Make sure you're elect. Make sure you're born again. Because it's easy to drift along with the crowd. And Jesus said in his great invitation to the Sermon on the Mount, Many will come to me in that day and say, oh, Lord, Lord, we've done many wonderful things. Even cast out demons in your name, and the Lord will say to them, depart from me, work of iniquity. I never knew you. Did he know about them? Yes, he knew about them. God knows everything. But he did not know them as part of his family. So the writer Hebrews goes back here again. John MacArthur says about this passage, people can go to church for years and hear the gospel over and over again, even becoming inoculated to it. That's what happens when a young person grows up in a Christian home, hears the gospel, but never receives it pretty soon. You just get used to it. It's not a big deal. And so then, like Hebrews 10 says, you count the blood of Christ as a common thing. It's not a big deal to you. You trample underfoot the blood of Christ, and there remains no more sacrifice for sin, over the years, parents have come to me. They've, they have had a Christian home. They raised their children in a Christian home. They come to me and say, oh, my, my son, my daughter's at the university. And they're just living a terrible life. And I know they're a Christian because they said a prayer when they were in grade school. And they got baptized when they were 12, right on time. I said, well, you know, you had 18 years. I'm not sure I can do something else. And the Bible says very clearly, if you have lived a life that causes them to stumble over the grace of God and not count it as a holy thing, you better pray. It's not too late for them. But salvation isn't by osmosis, just hanging around other Christians. The Bible says in John 1, 12, it's not by blood. No, you can't pass it on to your children because they belong to you biologically. It's by the power of God. When they accept God, the great offer of Jesus Christ. Verses 1 through 8, the writer of Hebrews here is saying, there's a great peril of people to fall. Those that are there, those that hear the gospel and over and over again, but they never apply it to their lives. There's a peril of them falling away. And while they're surrounded with people that have grace and peace and joy, they themselves still serve the gods of this world. In this case, the Hebrews Their family traditions and the traditions of the Old Testament. Not just the law. Because the purpose of the law was to teach them they could not make it. They needed God to cleanse them. So we come to verses 1 through 3. And we see this parallel falling away. And it says, therefore. What was the therefore for? Well, because they don't have discernment. They haven't partaken of of that which is mature, the new covenant. They just have the old, and they're clinging to that, and they don't want to let go of it. Like a lot of people that cling to a past, maybe they're growing up in a liturgical church, or, or, well, I've always been a Baptist, or they have this excuse, and they hold on to that. And they're in peril of drifting away, and there comes a time when the Holy Spirit will no longer strive with them, They'll no longer have fear of death of their eternity, and they'll drift into eternity without God. So he says, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ. Now, at first blush, you might think, and this is a difficult passage. You might think, oh, well, we need to move on from the basics of Christianity. That's not what he's saying here. The word there in the Hebrew Afemi, it means to leave like divorce. Let us abandon. Alfred explains it in words like this. Leaving as behind and done with in order to go on to another thing. Abandoning once for all. That was their problem. They thought they could have Christ and still hold on to their legalism. Justify themselves but learn some more things. And Paul talks about that. Some people that are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth... They need to abandon them. Leave. Leave the pictures of the Messiah because that's what literally it means. Teaching about the Christ. It didn't say teaching about Jesus, it said teachings about the Messiah. In the Old Testament, there was a partial picture. Now they have the real thing, the completed work of Jesus. They need to do that, they need to follow that. Drop the old covenant and accept the new. Then he goes on to say, press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. Now, in the Old Testament, that was the whole message. Repent of the things that will kill you, the sin that's killing in your life, and turn to God. Well, that's a good message, but in Acts... 20 verse 21, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the perfection, the finished work of Christ. So, leaving the Old Testament and that which God was done with and about to fold it up because 70 AD was coming and there would be no opportunity anymore for sacrifice, it would be done. And the Jewish people, instead of turning to Christ, they just made up other things. Other traditions, he goes on and he says, of instruction about washings. Now that's not about baptism, that's ceremonial washing. Remember Jesus got in trouble when he went to the Pharisee's house? And the Pharisee wondered why he didn't ceremonially wash. It wasn't that Jesus had dirty hands. But they took the laws, talk about cleanliness, and, and that was what was distinct about God's people. He gave them laws about cleaning and what to eat and what to not eat so they wouldn't die of the same diseases that the rest of the Gentiles were dying of. He gave them an amazing covenant. And so they made up something else that is just being clean and washed. They came up with this thing. You weren't washed until there was 11 drips off of each elbow. See, they ran water over your hands and then 11 drips. Okay, now you're cleansed. And the Pharisee wondered why Jesus hadn't, he just offended that Jesus hadn't washed ceremonially before they ate. And Jesus knew his heart. And he turned on him. In case you have the picture of Jesus was just this nice guy that was fully correct that never offended anybody. He turned on the guy who had invited him to dinner, his host, and he said, you know you Pharisees, you wash the outside of the cup, but on the inside you're full of all kinds of corruption and filth. You're like whited sepulchers that aren't marked, and, and so people walk over you and they become defiled. Because in the law, you were you not to walk by a, and walk over the top and touch places where dead people were, were, were at. That would defile you. He said, That's what you are. You pretend to be cleansed and you take care of the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's mo- bones and all manner of corruption. Why did he say that to that fellow who had invited him to eat? Because he loved him. He wanted to be done with the old and put his faith in Christ, the only thing that could save him. Leave the pictures of the Messiah and go on to the Messiah himself. Drop the old covenant, accept the new. All dependence upon the Levitical sacrifices is to be set aside in order that the Hebrews can go on to perfection. That the word perfection speaks of the New Testament sacrifice the Lord Jesus Christ in his finished work. He goes on in verse 2 and he says, instruction about washings, laying on of hands. What was laying on of hands? You laid your hands on the sacrifice. And we lay our hands on the Lamb of God once for all. There's no need to run back to do sacrifices because you have the sacrifice once for all. The Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. There were basic teachings in the Old Testament. We have so much more in the New Covenant. And they were so afraid they were going to miss something if they left it. Maybe that's what you're hanging on to, also. So, well, my family's been, and you name your religion. This, you know, I leave now, it's going to depart, you know? Yeah, that's right. There's a cutting. That's what baptism, we're going to see baptism today, that's what it signifies. Death to the old life, the old associations, and identification with the message of God and the new covenant you have with the people of God. Death of the old, new relationships, a new message. Verse 3. Now he said, remember, let us move on. Leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity. Verse 3, and this we will do. If God permits. So that's, that's a tough one. That's a really short verse. But that's, expositors are hard, hard with that. And so if you disagree with me this morning, that's fine. But in my study, I believe what he's saying is it's time for a decision. There is the sovereignty of God. But there's also the responsibility of man. And in God's sovereignty, he has made the gospel the powerful thing. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to what? To all that believe. To anyone that will receive him. We says, God never in the case of salvation violates man's free will. He's not gonna knock down your door and go in and say, well, you were appointed so you're saved now. No, no, no. We know that it's the sovereignty of God that shows us our sinful condition Bible says in John 6, 45, that all have heard, those that listen come to the Father. And him that cometh to me I will never cast out. All the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will never cast out. So you have both. You have the sovereignty of God that opens the eyes of a sinner, that helps them understand the gospel, But it's not just understanding the facts of the gospel. There must be a receiving, a personal application to your own life. So, we says, God never in the case of salvation violates man's free will. The choice must be made by these Hebrews between going back to the sacrifices or on to faith in Christ as high priest. But their spiritual declension, if persisted in, would result in their putting themselves beyond the reach of the Holy Spirit. That's a tough one, isn't it? That's hard. John Bunyan has the picture that Christian was, was seen and in, in the man in the cage that think he's, he's sinned beyond the grace of God. And both the pastor and John Bunyan tried to reason with the man. No, 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 you can trust Christ. No, 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 I've sinned past. Why? Because the Holy Spirit stopped working on his heart. You say, well, maybe next week I'll be able to count the cost and turn to Christ. You don't know if you have next week. And if you do, how do you know you'll be convicted next week? You don't know. In verses four and four and five, there's the question that always comes up what about those that left? And this is, this is a difficult one. And I believe, just simply, and if, if you're more of a theologian, that, my hat's off to you. It's funny, uh, whether you look at uh, Wearsby or MacArthur or these great theologians you look at, they come through to the same place, but they take a different path to get there. And that's all right. When we get to heaven, God will tell us exactly. But I believe He's answering the question once again. The same question that Jesus answered when he talked about the different kinds of soil that seed has fallen on. The seed of the gospel is very powerful, but some of the seed falls on the roadside, and the birds, they come and eat it, and those people, the, the soil of the heart that's the roadside, hard soil, they hear the gospel, it's not a big deal, they never think about it again. Then there's some seed that falls among the stones of the stony ground. And there's a little moisture there in the morning. But when the sun comes up, it dries up and it withers and it dies because it has no root. And when Jesus explains it, he says, the sun that comes out is persecution that comes by the word. And it says, by and by, they're offended by the word. Then there's the third kind, and that's the thorny soil, the weeds that grow up. And they're not offended by the word. They just get busy with life and the cares of this life and riches and they get distracted and pretty soon they're away from the Lord and it squeezes out the life and there's no life. I think that's the same thing he's talking about because in our heart, of hearts as Christians, we go, that fella, that girl, they were there. They were so excited about it and now they're nowhere to be found. 1 John 2, 19 says, they went out from us but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out, so there would be known that they're not of us. We read this morning in Psalm 1. The ungodly will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. Why? Because the wind of opposition comes, the draw of the world, and pretty soon whew, it blows the chaff away. God is always winnowing, he's always separating. And so here he answers the question. Verse For, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, you say, well, it sounds like they're saved and then they lost it. Well, this is the part in the song that's kind of offensive to me. It says, and then fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. There are many Christian denominations that like to use fear. And they say, well, if you sin this sin, then you're not saved anymore. Okay. But this teaches also if you can lose your salvation, you can't get it back again. Ooh. So how do we explain those people, they've been with us, they made a decision, maybe they're even baptized, and then pretty soon they're whew, just gone. Well, we don't know. We don't know Hearts. It's possible they were never saved. It's possible that because of sin, God's going to take them home early. Because if every believer, he disciplines them. Every single believer has disciplined their life. Lost people, you know, the Lord doesn't spank other people's kids. I hope you don't. You know, Kat told me one time now, if Harrison's bad, you give him a spank. And I said, oh, no, no. No, I'm the grandpa, I'm the papa. My job is done. I'm not doing that. But the Lord does to his children, doesn't he? And it says, these that leave, what is he saying? They had every opportunity. They understood the gospel. They had everything they needed to make a decision. But these Hebrews were like the spies of Kadesh Barnea, who saw the land. They had the fruit in their hands, and yet they turned back. Many a sinner has been buoyed up by the message of the evangelist, has had stirrings in his bosom, has had a pleasant reaction toward the truth, and yet when the decision time came, has said the world is too much with us and has turned back to sin, Kenneth Wiest. a sad. And the writer of this book is saying, listen, don't go away. This is the only thing that will save you. And if you leave this, you don't know if you'll never have an opportunity And Warren Wiersbe says he thinks that the writer is just using hyperbole here. That if you could lose your salvation, you can't get it back again. Therefore, those that went out, they, they never had it. They put on a good show. They had stirrings. They experienced the fellowship. But they went back. How do we tell? How do we know? Two things. Verse 7 and 8. For the ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. How do we tell? Two things the Bible talks about in the life of a believer, discipline and fruit, Hebrews chapter 12 verse 8 but if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In 1 Corinthians 5 on that very powerful passage of scripture on church discipline. Paul says, I've already decided to put this one out and deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that he might be saved in the day of Christ. What he's saying Saying if a a person calls himself a believer and they won't turn away from sin, there's a list there. Then you put him out. You stop fellowshipping with him. Why? Because you love him more and you love the Word of God more than you care about what his opinion of you is going to be. And so you disfellowship from that person. And if you do that, and they can go on their merry way, and nothing bad had. There's no discipline in their life. The Bible says you can conclude they never belonged to the Lord. But if you put them out from fellowship, guess what? They're going to be miserable. And in 2 Corinthians, I believe Paul writes about the same guy they put out in 1 Corinthians 5. And he says, now take him back lest he be overcome with too much grief. Why? Because the church as a whole was obedient. He got out there by himself without fellowship, which a, a believer can't live without. And he was miserable and he repented and he said, oh, please take me back. Paul said, now take him back. But the Bible says there, if you're without discipline, you're illegitimate and not sons. Jesus wrote in Matthew 7, verse 16 and following, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. So then you will know them by their fruit. It's fruit. The problem is we want so bad for people to be saved, what do we do? We run around hanging fruit on them. Here, quick, you don't want to go to hell, say this prayer. Please say this prayer. And so they say the prayers, and now you've got to get baptized. Okay, I'll get baptized. Hey, now listen, you got to come to church. Yeah, but I got things that are more important. I got the Broncos on Sunday. I mean, come on. I got to get ready. I got to get my game paint on. I got to paint the house. We got to be orange and blue. You know, we, we, I'm going to the game. Church. Hey, Pastor, it's hunting season. You know, I can't be there. It's hunting season. Yeah, pastor, you're getting close now. And so we say, no, 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 you, you need to be here. And so sometimes they even submit to our legalism because that's what it is for them. They're thinking, oh, well, I better do this, make everybody happy. We keep hanging fruit on them, and yet they just still keep producing the thorns and the bitter fruit. And we say, oh, oh man, they need to have a cleansing. But the Bible says if a, if a bough doesn't bear fruit, the vine's not bearing fruit, the Lord will cleanse it, he'll prune it, he'll lift it up. But if all that tree is producing is bitterness and fear and the only happen is the circumstance of what? You might be able to conclude from that. I would hope that you would and you would pray for your brother and sister and say, they don't have it. Because the Bible says, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. There's nothing but like the troubled sea always casting up mire and dirt and no matter how much raisins you hang on them, they're still not bearing that fruit. But he says in verses 9 through 20, we hope for better things for you. He wants to assure them there is security in Christ. You are the only ones that know between you and the Holy Spirit really in your heart of hearts whether you've really accepted Jesus Christ your Savior. So we're not here walking around going, oh, I don't know. There's some church like, oh, you're not in now. I can tell because you're struggling with this, so you're not in. You're out. I'm going to pray you get saved. Well... <laughs> No, that's not what we're supposed to do. In fact, the Lord said, don't go around pulling out the weed because the, the enemy comes and he, tear, he sows tares among the wheat, among the good plants. And the servants said, well, should we go try to root them? But no, don't do that. You might pull up some of the young plants too. Those young plants are still struggling with, with some things. No, you don't do that. You leave it for the harvest. But in the meantime, we preach the whole counsel of God so that you might listen. And if you're not sure, Know this, God wants you to be secure. He wants his children to be secure in his love, and so he gives us the rest of this chapter. And he says, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. He understands he's being very, very sharp because he loves them. He doesn't want anybody to miss them, to fall short of the grace of God by just being religious For God is not just so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. What is he saying? These people are in the church. People tell me on a regular basis because of your love for one another. They come in whether they know the Lord or not and they say wow, I came in this place and I just, there's something different about this place. That's right. That's the fellowship of the saints. It's the ministry of the saints. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit through his people. And there is a comfort and there is a joy here that can't be experienced in the world. So people come into this safe haven and, and they feel safe. Years ago, I asked my, my buddy Ben Sanchez, before he came to Christ, I Said, Ben, why do you like coming here? He says, he's this teenager in high school. He says, Paul, I feel safe here. Oh, that blessed my heart. This should be a safe place, not a place of criticizing. A safe place for people to feel loved. But don't mistake that love of the saints around you for the own love that God has given you in your heart. Have you received that? So he's saying you have this example around you of those that are serving the Lord and ministering and you're a part of that even. We have the example of somebody like that in Acts chapter 10. A man named uh, Cornelius lived in Caesarea. He was a centurion, a Roman soldier. And God was working in his heart, but he wasn't saved yet. But he loved God's people. He was a devout man, one who feared God with all of his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. And God heard his prayer. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says, Don't you know, man? That is the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. Some people have their testimony and they say, well, you know, I was going down the road and God saved me from an accident. Okay. That's God's goodness, but it's not salvation. Some people enjoy the blessing of God and they think they're okay because they're blessed. No, no, no. The rain falls and the just and the unjust. The difference is what is your field bringing forth? Do you know the Lord? If you're Part of him, if it's part of your life, you can only bring forth the fruit that he's bearing through you. Well, this fella, an angel appears to him, and he said, Cornelius, and Cornelius fixed his eyes on him and being much alarmed, because that's what happens when an angel shows up. You get scared. What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a before God. I want you to send men to Joppa and find name, a man named Peter, and you tell him to come see you so they did. And when they showed up, they said to Peter, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. And guess what? Cornelius got saved. Cornelius got saved. Here's the thing about the sovereignty of God. God knows every single one he's chosen. He sets his affection on you. And he gets everyone he set his affection on. But you also turn to him. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that when you turn to Christ, the veil is taken away. That's when the veil is taken You realize you're lost, but when you make the decision to turn to Christ, the veil is taken away and you see him. God turns the light on. Just like the Bible says in the Old Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I think it's verse 4. I mean, verse 4, verse, chapter 4, verse 6. It says, just as light was spoken into darkness, just like God the Son said, let there be light in creation. There was light. God has spoken the light of salvation into your heart. And you see your lost condition. And what do you do? You turn to him. You receive him. As many as received him, to them gave you the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. In verses 13 through 18, he says, listen, you can trust God's promises. See, they're looking at letting go of what they know. That's always the fear. That's what salvation is, counting the cost. Jesus said, everybody that's going to go build a tower has to sit down and figure out how much it's going to cost. Otherwise, or, or a house. And, and, and so you figure it out and then you, if you don't have the money, you have a place for people to mock. It was hard when we were building as the Lord was letting us build this building here. Because we were going as God provided, and all of a sudden we had a basement for about a year or more. And people are saying, huh, what'd you build out there? Is that like a bomb shelter? What is that, a water treatment facility? <laughs> no. It's a building. We learned through that process the grace of being able to say, Hey, it'll be done when God gets done. But you know that that feeling. You go build a house, but you have money to finish it. And then people say, Oh, look, that guy couldn't plan. Or the general that goes out to war and says, hmm, that guy's got a big army. What do I have? And if he doesn't have enough to meet, he goes out and he makes a peace treaty, right? You need to count the cost. That's what part of salvation is. Jesus said in that process of counting the cost, if any man would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That means Christ becomes the Lord of your life. He's not an addendum. He's not a little extra thing you put in the bank for a rainy day. He's Lord. That means when his his word speaks, you obey. You don't say, well, let me figure this out. How's it going to work for me? No, you submit to the word of God because Christ is Lord of your life. That's what believers do. But in verses 13 through 18, we have the promise of God, his promise Personally, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as a confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge, we have a strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. What are the two things? The promise of God and the fact that God cannot lie. He cannot lie. And so as a believer, as a true believer, when you are doubting your salvation because there's sin in your life or or you're, you're fearful, what do you do? Go back to the covenant. Same thing you do if you go buy a new truck or a new car and all of a sudden something goes wrong. You open up that warranty book and you say, well, yep, that's covered. It says bumper to bumper. That includes the transmission. And, and sometimes just to make sure because you've dealt with these people before, you take it in the dealership, right? Right here. It's covered. Now the good dealer says he's happy to do that just like our Lord is happy to do that. You need assurance, God wants His children to be secure. He wants you to be assured. He wants you to understand that His love never fails and is not dependent upon your performance if you belong to Him. So where do you go? You go back to the Word. Some people say, well, I pray. Well, that's good, but something better. God's promise and the fact that God cannot lie. Romans 10, verse 11. For the Scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's God promise. Did you do that? Some people say, well, I've always been a Christian. No, you haven't. You may have always known about God, but are you in covenant with him? Has he interposed his precious blood for you between God's judgment and the law? Do you belong to him? There has to be that conversation you have in your heart of hearts with the Lord. It might be right here this morning where you sit. In the quiet of your heart you say, Lord be merciful to me a sinner. I know I'm lost without you and I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin and rose again and today This day, November 1st, Lord, I commit my life to you. I give you my life. You be the Lord of my life. Help me to follow you closely. So the good things that he has are the example and the experience of true fellowship in the church. He says you've experienced that. You just haven't committed to Christ yet. You have the promise of God. And thirdly, verses 18 through 20, you have the finished promise work of Christ. You have an anchor that is steadfast and sure. He says there, so that by two interchangeable things which is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge, we have a strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 1.12, For this reason I also suffer these things. How in the storms, how can you be sure when life is throwing you around, when a loved one dies and you're shook up about eternity? He said, I, For this reason I suffer these things, and I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, And I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. That's God's job, not my job. That's God's job. Romans chapter 8, 38 and 39. Paul, after all he'd been through, said, I am convinced that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. In 1882, a lady named Priscilla Jane Owens wrote this great hymn. The first verse and chorus goes like this. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfold their wings of strife? When the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, anchored to the rock that cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. Do you know him today? Are you grounded there? Or is it just circumstantial? Well, it's a family thing. We just go to that church. Do you know Jesus? When you stand before him one day, when you leave this life, you're going to stand before him. And if you know him, if he knows you, he'll say, oh, welcome child. Enter now into the joy of the Lord. But he wants you to have the assurance today. Do you have it? Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for this chapter. That though difficult, it is so sweet because your promise is secure. That we can know for sure because you want us to. That you love us. And you're going to care for us. You will keep us. Through all the trials, through all the storms, through death. Until one day we see a face to face. Oh, what a joy that will be. Lord, I pray for those that don't know you this morning. Show them the awful condition they're in. And Lord, draw them to yourself. Help them to flee the wrath to come and flee into your arms. Because you've told us in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28. Come unto me, all you that are weary, weak and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm meek and lowly, and you'll find rest to your soul. Lord, give them rest today. We'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.